Is it going to work? Clearly, ah, yes, it is. There you go. It's going to be one of those mornings, isn't it? Okay, so this is what it says in Galatians chapter 5. This is Paul writing to the Galatians. We've read this um, probably most weeks, but it's good to read it again. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. We're going to read as well a passage from Titus. This is Paul writing to Titus. This is what Paul says to him. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So we're going to be focusing on the last fruit, the last thing that Paul talks about. It's the climax of what Paul says is uh, the marks of living a fruitful life as a follower of Jesus Christ self-control. I mean, it's hugely challenging. Listen to what one person says about self-control. This is David Mathis. This is what he says. It sounds so simple. This is self-control. Listen to it. It sounds so simple and straightforward, perhaps even commonplace. It's not a flashy concept or an especially attractive idea. It doesn't turn heads or grab headlines. It can be as seemingly small as saying no to another Oreo. That's a chocolate biscuit for those of you who don't know. French fry or milkshake. Or another half hour on Netflix or Facebook. Or it can feel as significant as living out a resounding yes to sobriety and sexual purity. It's at the height of Christian virtue in a fallen world and its exercise is quite simply one of the most difficult things that you can ever learn to do. One of the most difficult things you can ever learn to do. So what is self-control? It's the ability to control oneself in particular, your emotions and your desires, especially in difficult situations. It's a bit like taking a dog for a walk on a lead. I don't know if you, those of you who've got dogs, but we used to have a dog when I was growing up. He was a Scots Terrier. Uh, his name was Sam, Sammy. And um, I, I remember, my, I just remember my dad would take him out for a late night walk just before... Um, we went to bed, or he went to bed, and he'd take him out. And he, it, for, when he was quite, he was younger. He was quite a, a troubled little dog. He's quite a handful. And he took him out, and he made the mistake of taking him off his lead. And literally, I just remember the dog bolted, just went. My dad shouting at him, chasing him down the road. He's gone. He's gone for hours. My dad is comes in. He's I can. He's just really cross. The dog has just gone. Headed for the hills. He was off. And about, he turned up uh, early hours in the morning, scratching on the door. 
We think we have everything under control in our lives. And then our emotions slip the leash and get the better of us. And we end up doing or saying something that we later regret. We get angry. We lose control. We just overeat. We do something inappropriate in our behavior. We, maybe we drink too much. Maybe we're just passive. We're too passive. We're lazy. We don't do what we know we ought to do. And we miss opportunities. Self-control. You see, our lack of self-control in particular areas will stop us becoming all that we want to be. Athletes who want to compete in the Olympics, they have to go into rigorous training to be able to achieve their goal. And if we want to live fruitful lives in these days, if we're going to be fruitful for God, if we're going to exercise control, self-control, we're going to need some help. And you see, there are lots of people giving us advice out there. There's loads of advice out there. And the advice is, uh, you know, you're anxious and they say, stop worrying. Well, that's fine. But I can't, you know, I'm just, I I mean, how do I stop worrying? Well, stop worrying. Well, no, no, no. How do I do it? I get angry. Well, count to ten. Come here and I'll give you count to ten. I'll show you what. I mean, this sort of... This sort of encouragement doesn't really help. It doesn't help us. And yet there's all sorts of courses. You can go on anger management courses. You can go on, uh, join a slimming club. You can go to the gym. You can go to all sorts of courses and classes that are going to try and help you do better and exercise self-control. You see... Self-control, when we lose it, it it has just such an impact. And so we do all sorts of things to to try and overcome. And and so over the years and through the centuries, people have done really strange things. So uh, there's something called asceticism, where people beat themselves, uh, uh, you know, physically. They do things to their bodies just to try and keep themselves going in the right direction. People withdraw from relationships because just because of they just want to exercise self-control, so they almost become monastic and they pull away from society because actually they can't control themselves, so they, they withdraw from situations. There are all sorts of ways that people try to achieve it. People use dangerous diets. I was reading something the other day about the fastest way to lose weight is uh, apparently now the water diet. Basically, you don't eat anything, you just drink water. I mean, it's madness. It's madness. It's just not healthy. I've come up with a better one. It's called the air diet. You just breathe. Breathe. Don't do anything else. Breathe. It doesn't, basically, you've got three days and then it's all over. I mean, crazy. I mean, these sort of things about trying to beat our bodies into submission, make our bodies do the things we want to, make ourselves go in the direction we want to go. We, we go through all these processes, and it easily slips into extremes. And the thing is, they're impossible to maintain. We do well for a moment, but we simply can't keep it up. Honestly, it's exhausting. It's just exhausting 
and it ends up with us uh, with spectacular lapses in behavior. See, the, this sort of approach to self-control, it has dogged the church for centuries. And that's why most people think Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts. If you do this, if you live this, if you do that, if you go that way, if you stop doing this. Somehow people think that that's what Christianity looks like. That's what we have conveyed to people. Paul says it's a form of godliness that denies its power. I mean, I, as I was growing up in church, I, uh, I heard a lot of things that I wasn't supposed to do. I, was, I grew up in a church where they said, you are not, you don't drink alcohol. If you're a Christian, you don't drink alcohol. You don't go dancing. Discos are just a den of iniquity, of wrongdoing. Don't go to discos. You don't go to the cinema. And on Sundays, you don't do anything. I mean, I tell you, Sunday was the most miserable day of the week growing up. It was like that. Honestly, it was like that. It was miserable. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't go out. You couldn't go and play. It was just miserable. List of do's and don'ts. And I knew if I wanted to please this God, I had to try harder. I had to be good, which was difficult for me. And I I just lived in this world of if I didn't read my Bible, God wouldn't love me as much. And so I would try harder. I'd keep going. And when I didn't pray, I'd I'd just, I'd wake up. I remember times in the middle of the night I woke up and I'd remember, I haven't read my Bible today. God won't love me. I must read my Bible. So in the middle of the night, well, everybody's asleep. I would read my Bible for two or three minutes just so I'd feel okay that God loved me. What a terrible, terrible way to live. And in the end, my self-control as a student spectacularly failed. I blew it big time. Big time. I was like the man in Proverbs 25, verse 28. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Just couldn't do it. It affected other areas of my life. I was hot-headed, playing or watching football. In fact, watching any sport, I was hot-headed. People tried to help. They made me captain of the football team in the hope that I would exert more self-control. Didn't work. Didn't work. I would work well for a moment, and then I would lose it in a moment. My team talks at the beginning is, were legendary. I had people afterwards go, now, every calm down, because I just get so worked up. My solution at 26, the solution, my solution for self-control was to stop playing football competitively at 26. Unfortunately, I was capable of starting a row in a lift on my own. Honestly, I could do it. And I remember, in, I remember being in a meeting as a, as a young man, as a, as a young planning officer with a, a consultant and, and his clients, and it was a big meeting. And I remember in the meeting, I just remember doing this in the, in the midst of what was supposed to be a, a rational debate and discussion. I remember going like that, talking like that at the consultant. The consultant, who was a hothead, he totally lost it. 
He shouts and storms and his clients have to drag him out of the meeting. But I started it. I started it. I looked all innocent afterwards like that, but I started it. That was the sort of, that was the sort of thing that was raging on the inside. You see, the root of the problem is that we will not acknowledge and rely on the God who created us. We want to be masters of our own destiny. Consequently, we have to control ourselves to navigate our way through life. Without God, it's like driving on snow. (laughs) Driving on snow, it's like the car snaking all over the place. I couldn't get my car out of the drive this morning, trying to reverse it out. It was just the wheels were going all over the place. The car was saying, we had to take Annie's car in the end. Just wouldn't go anywhere. No self, no control over the car at all. None of us can stand before a holy God and with any hope of meeting his perfect standard, however self controlled, however hard we try. Paul knew the feeling. This is what he said I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. Have you ever felt like that? I want to do what's right. And then you find out, find yourself doing the exact opposite. Oh, no, blow. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Who will... Who will free me? Is there any hope? Is there any help for me? Paul says, gives his answer, three simple words. Grace has appeared. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all men. The answer is grace. You see, the problem is one of the human heart. There's something broken deep inside. We weren't made to live like the way we live. And the story started in a garden by a tree with fruit that we shouldn't eat. That's where it started with Adam and Eve. And the cost of eating from the tree was that their relationship with the God who made them and formed them and knew them and understood them would be broken. And they ate. They turned away from God. The devil's lie was that we would be in control of our own destiny. And we fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. We believed the lie. Too late we've realized we can't live the way that we want to live. We can't do it. The standards we set ourselves are so often beyond our grasp. God's standards are unreachable. We have our standards and we can't quite make our standards. But God's standards are so far beyond. We just can't do it. How on earth do we reach it? We can't. Our desire for self-control has come at a high cost. Separation from our Father. Trying to keep rules and regulations simply doesn't satisfy the longings of the human heart for love, value and acceptance. Paul tells us, grace has appeared. Like the sun from behind the clouds on a dark day, suddenly the sun bursts forth. Jesus Christ broke into this world. 
God's grace, his unmerited favour is not a force or an idea, it's a person. God's grace is revealed in Jesus Christ. God is a gracious God, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so when we see Jesus, we see God's grace in all its glory. We see it perfectly in him. He came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace appeared. A better way was opened up. Exercising our own self-control doesn't deal with the problem of the human heart. Grace can. It's not about trying harder. It's not about what we do or what we don't do. We find true self-control when we submit our lives to Jesus Christ. The unmerited favour of God has been revealed in one game-changing moment. We can't keep to God's standards, God's law, however hard we try. Jesus could and did. We read of Jesus being tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. And we read of how the devil tempts Jesus to try and knock him off course. So Jesus hasn't eaten, he hasn't been drinking, and the devil comes and says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And Jesus goes, no. It's written, man will not live by bread alone. And he, he exercises control, self-control, and he turns away. He doesn't give in to the devil's temptation. The devil tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, but Jesus won't give in to his temptation. He holds firm, presses through an event. Eventually the devil, it says, leaves him for an opportune time. And eventually Jesus goes to another garden and to another tree which the Bible calls the cross. And the fruit of that tree could only be bought at extortionate cost, his very life. Jesus, on that tree, died for our rebellion, for our desire for self-control. Jesus died submitting himself to the Father's will. His death on our behalf means that we can be forgiven and we can know God as our Father. Christianity is not about trying harder. It's not about our self-control. It's about his self-control for us. We receive all that Jesus has won for us, but by grace. It can be yours today. It can be yours today if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your personal self. You can do it today. Do it today. Receive grace from God. You don't have to try harder. He's done it all for us. Grace has appeared. Grace teaches us. There's um, a guy called Walter Mischel. He was an Ivy League professor. He experimented on self-control in the late 60s. And he experimented with preschool children and he came up with a test for self-control called the marshmallow test so what he would do he would put a marshmallow in front of children and he would say if they don't eat it he would give them another one so it was all about delayed gratification for future uh, benefit and so there's an image of a child with a marshmallow. You imagine just they look at it and they, they sort of like, and, and in the end, they, they, some of them give in. 
And the test, uh, uh, they, ran the, they ran the test, and, and afterwards, in years afterwards, they went back to those who had done the test as they grew older. And what they found, what, they, what he found was this. He found that those who exercised self-control tended to be thinner, had better degrees, and coped better with stress. And his conclusion was this, that self-control can be taught. I mean, to be honest, we could have saved him a few bags of marshmallows and years of his life. Because Paul has spelt this out in the Bible. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace teaches us. It's no shock to us there. Grace teaches us two things. First of all, it teaches us to say no. I remember when I was in KCC, in uh, King's Community Church in Hedge End, and I was one of the leaders there, was preaching two weeks in a row, I was preaching on grace. And the first week I preached on uh, God's love and unmerited favour towards us. And the second week I preached on grace teaches us to say no. And I remember someone coming up to me at the end of the second week, and they said to me this, they said, Steve, I loved what you said last week. I hated what you said this morning. That was the gist of it. Probably didn't use the word hated, but he said, really, really did like, he was very cross. Um, and there was cross because actually the message they'd heard in the first week was all about, uh, that what they'd heard inside them in their own heart was, I can do live how I like and God still loves me and it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter how I behave. But the second week cut right across it, grace teaches us to say no. And they were really, really frustrated and irritated with me. You see, God's word has a lot to say about how we live in relationship with each other. In Galatians chapter 5, just before Paul talks about fruits of the Spirit, which we've been working through, um, he talks about things that are desires, unhealthy desires. Tim Keller calls these over-desires. The better word would be over-desires. Things that we want too much. Things that we desire too much. Those are the things we need to say no to. And this, his list includes all sorts of things. Sexual behavior, immorality, impurity. Talks about debauchery, uncontrolled sexuality. Talks about religious practices. Things like the occult and witchcraft. He talks about relationships. He talks a lot about relationships. And Paul says there's some things we're to say no to. He talks about hatred. There's no place, he says, for hatred amongst God's people. Discord, rows, arguments, jealousy, envy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, competitiveness. That competitiveness that drives us. An argumentativeness, uh, factions where we split into groups and we're in this group and I'm in that group and you're in that group and somehow it creates division amongst God's people drunkenness he says Paul said these sort of things these are the things we need to say no to and grace teaches us to do it grace teaches us to say no Keller 
says this in Galatians for you. The main problem with our heart is not so much the desire for bad things, but our over-desire for good things. When a good thing becomes our God, it creates over-desires. Who's in control in your heart? Who's in control? Is it you? Are you still in control? So this week we were running our parenting course. It was the second week, and at the end... We had a moment at the end of, the, uh, the end of Tuesday night, uh, one of the parents came in and said, one of the uh, people on the course came in and said, uh, lost our car keys, can't find the car keys. So everybody were running around trying to find the car keys. And in the end they found out this is what had happened. It was a newfangled car key. You don't need the key to turn the ignition. Actually you just need the key close to you. And the car will start if you press a button. Remarkable sort of thing. The only problem was, was that the car was parked by the front door and the key was just the other side inside the front door. So they got into the car, started the car up, drove here, parked the car, came in, went back to the car. The key's miles away. They can't. They can't. They think... They're in control of the car. They have no control. Suddenly they're in a moment, actually it stopped working. It doesn't work anymore. Who's in control? Who's in control of your life? Are you like that? Are you driving that you feel like you're in control, but actually the key, the thing that's really going to cause this thing to work, is left behind? See, there's some things you need to say no to, but there are some things you need to say yes to because grace teaches us to say yes. God doesn't want to live us to live with the sorts of things that we've just touched about, dominating our lives. Grace wants us, God wants us to live self-controlled, godly and upright lives in these days. Lives that please him. God wants us to love him with all our heart, soul and mind. And he wants us to love one another as we love ourselves. Jesus said the whole of the law hangs on those two things. Grace teaches us to say yes to a whole new way of living. Love, joy, peace, patience. Grace gives us a new motivation. This is what Paul says. Either way, Christ's love controls us since we believe that Christ died for all we also believe that we have all died to our old life he died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves instead they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them Christ's love for us which we see at the cross controls us That's how it's supposed to be. We are supposed to so love him and be so grateful for the love that he has lavished on us that it changes everything. We're so in love with him, we'd do anything for him. Some of you will have heard me tell this illustration before. Sam Storms uses it in his book, Pleasures Evermore, and it comes from Greek mythology, and it's about the sirens, the song of the sirens. And the sirens... They created this beautiful sound and it was to lure sailors onto their shore. They were really uh, 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 harpies, they were cannibals, They they were looking to destroy sailors, devour sailors. And so when you went by you heard this beautiful sound, it would lure ships onto the rocks. 
And there's uh, uh, a, a great Greek hero called Ulysses. He's, he's sailing past the island and he wants to hear the sound. He's, he, he wants to hear this alluring sound. He wants to know what it's like. So what he does is this. He gets all his sailors, he puts wax in their ears and he, he gets them to tie him to the mast with his ears unwaxed. And so he's tied to the mast and as he goes past the island, he hears this song, this sound, this alluring sound. And it nearly drives him mad. Drives it nearly drives him mad, and they pass, and the madness passes. But he would have thrown himself into the sea just to get close to the sound. There's a later Greek hero called Jason, and as his ship passes by the island, he has a totally different way of handling it. On board is a guy called Orpheus, the most um, incredible musician, and so Jason says to Orpheus, play, play for us. And Orpheus plays this most beautiful music, this most alluring, his best music. And as he plays it, everybody is, is captivated by the sound. And they sail past the island. They don't drive the ship onto the rocks. Why? Because they are so captivated by Orpheus's music. So captivated by all his music, they passed by. His song, the song he played, was so much greater. You see, the self-control the world promotes is like us tying ourselves to the mast. We hear the song of this world and it's so alluring. And, and to be honest, we may not do anything because we can't, but in our hearts we're lost. Our hearts are given, we're tied to a mass by rules and regulations and we may not do anything about it, but our hearts are gone. There is a better way. Thomas Chalmers puts it like this. He says, Thomas Chalmers says, calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. Grace teaches us to love another so much more than anything this world has to offer. As we experience the love of God for us, it should overwhelm us. The trouble is, we gaze too briefly at Jesus and we forget too easily. The Moravians' catchphrase, if you like, was Christ and Christ only. They were so captivated by Jesus They were so captivated by him, some of them allegedly sold themselves into slavery so that they could reach them, these people for Christ. There's stories of that happening. So loved Jesus, they would do anything for him. The world's cry, the world's song meant nothing to them. The expulsive power of a new affection. That's why Paul urges Timothy talked about it last week. Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. He's talking to a leader of a church. He's saying, remember Jesus Christ. The trouble is, I can get so busy with stuff, with doing stuff, that I forget to look at Jesus. And when I do that, my heart gets caught up and pulled in all sorts of directions. We're called to be a people who love him. Love him for what he's done for us. Love him for who he is to us. We should be overwhelmed by the riches of his grace. 
The grace that's been lavished on us, we're told. Godly self-control is birthed out of love for Christ. Does love, does love for Christ control us? If it does, it will shape our language. It will shape the way we dress. It will shape our behavior. It will shape the way we treat others. It will affect our attitude to money. It will affect our attitude to how we feel when we get up in the morning or how we handle our moods, about how we handle our health. It will affect our reactions and how we react to what other people say and the way others treat us. It will affect what we do with our eyes, what we do with our ears, our hands and our mouths. It will affect the way that we think. I tell you, it will change the way that we think. This is what Paul says to the Thessalonians. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. What Paul is saying is that our mind, our thought process, we need to protect it. We need to protect it. And he says it's it's like a helmet, the helmet of salvation we put on our head. What God has done for us, if we allow that to guard our minds, he has loved me so much that he gave his son for me. If we live in that place, if we every day can spend time focusing on him at the start of the day, At the close of the day, if he can be our all in all, our minds, God will guard our minds. And that's where it all starts, in our minds, our desires and our Actually, it starts here. Before we ever do anything, we've done it up here many times before. We've thought it through. Grace teaches us. Finally, grace empowers us. God graciously gives us his spirit of grace, his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And Paul says that if we live by the spirit, we won't give in to these over desires. If we're led by the spirit, we're not under law anymore, as we read earlier. The spirit empowers us to live for God. And to live by the spirit means keeping in step with the spirit. You see, Titus, Paul says to Titus that grace makes us eager to do what is good. There's a new motivation. The Holy Spirit births a new motivation within us. We become eager to do what is good. Now, when you spend time with someone who is eager to do something, to be honest, if you are not that keen, they're really irritating, aren't they? When someone's really eager... And you're sort of like, actually, do you know what? They, they just get under your skin a bit. They get under your skin a bit. The early Christians so got under the skin of the people of Antioch that they had a mocking name for them. Christ-like ones, Christians. That's where the name Christian first comes from. Because they were so eager to do what is good. They were so filled with the Holy Spirit. They so loved God. They were so knew the grace of God. They knew the grace of God empowered them. There was a new motivation in their hearts. They, they were people who worked and did what they did with all of God's energy 
The, the, the New Testament calls it the dunamis, the, the power like dynamite within, the Holy Spirit of grace within them, enabling them to live the lives that God wanted them to live. Grace empowers us to be eager to do what is good. He wants us to be a people who take initiative. You see, when we're filled with the Spirit, when we know the grace of God in that way, it, it equips us to, to, to take initiative. We're people who should be taking initiative to do what's good. Whether that's in the workplace, in the street, with our neighbours, when we bump into people on the, or, 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 wherever we are on the streets of Winchester. We're to be people who take initiative. You see, in an unexpected moment, if God is with us, who knows what God will do? It's an opportunity, whatever's happening. If we live knowing that God is with us, he never leaves us, never forsakes us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13 verses 5. The writer goes on to say, uh, if God is like that, we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? If we know God's with us, every moment is an opportunity. Whatever's going on, whatever disaster is happening around you, if God is with you, if God's spirit empowers you, if grace is empowering you, you can do whatever. Who knows what God will do through you? It's an opportunity. And people who are filled with the love of God know the grace of God. They live in a different way. They don't live looking at the circumstances. They live looking at Christ. The love of Christ compels them. In Acts 16, we read about an incident with Paul and Silas. We read of a, read of a troubled girl. This troubled girl in Philippi, she is earning her living as a fortune teller. She's a slave. And she latches on to Paul and Silas as they're starting to... Uh, build a church in Philippi and they started to tell people about Jesus and she starts to follow them. She's troubled in her heart, in her spirit. There's a, uh, there's, the, the devil uh, is working on her and causing her to cause disturbance, discord, causing hassle and division and creating a row around uh, 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 Paul and Silas. Day after day after day, she follows them, shouting at them. Eventually, Paul takes initiative, and he casts out this spirit. And then it all kicks off. Paul and Silas are dragged before the magistrates. They're stripped, they're beaten, they're thrown in prison and put in stocks. Wow. Grace really works, doesn't it? Grace empowered them in the moment and they are able to worship God in the most miserable circumstances and then suddenly there's an earthquake the chains of all the prisoners come loose they could head for the hills but grace empowers them to stay the jailer thinks it's all over thinks it's going to cost him his life his prisoners have escaped and he hears Paul shouting to him, don't do anything to yourself. And he goes in and he finds all his prisoners there, sitting, listening to Paul and Silas. And that night, the jailer, his wife and his whole household come to faith in Christ 
and are immediately baptised. They're baptised in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, as soon as they put their trust in Christ. That situation was an opportunity. Grace empowered them at every turn. For us, what's going on in your life at the moment? How tough is it for you? I want to tell you that grace will empower you to live a different way, to take initiative, to be a light for Christ in these days. Hardships are opportunities to pursue God through prayer. Our prayer life shows what we really believe. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable to encourage us to pray and never give up. We should have faith in God. If we truly trust God, any obstacle resisting his work can be removed and moved out of the way. God can do anything he wants to do. Grace is enough. Nothing is impossible for God. God wants us to take initiative. This is what it says in 1 Peter 4 verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. It's a day coming when Jesus is coming back and he wants us to be those who are so focused on him he wants us to be people who stand firm. This is what, Paul, uh, what Peter says. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Resist him. Grace empowers us to do that. Grace has appeared. That's great news. These days, grace has appeared. Jesus Christ has come that we might know the grace of God, that we might live in a different way. Jesus has opened the way for us to know our Father who loves us. This is not about rules and regulations anymore. It's not about, I've got to do this, or otherwise he won't love me. He couldn't love you any more than he already does. He's proved it. He set his son to the cross for you. Jesus exercised godly self-control by the spirit it says jesus was full of the spirit he went to the cross and the holy spirit enabled him to press through for us and because he pressed through for us we can know god's spirit within us enabling us to live a different way in this world grace teaches us grace teaches us to say no teaches us to say yes teaches us to walk a different way not because we have to keep rules but because we love him he is so the center of our world he is the son of our universe he is our all in all when we get up in the morning we focus our eyes on him at the end of the day we look back and we say Jesus thank you you've been with me grace teaches us and grace empowers us God's spirit within us. Jesus said, it's better I go to be with the Father and send the spirit. The spirit will be within each one of you. And we can know God's spirit within us that enables us to live in a different way. That's the key to these fruits of the spirit. That's the key to them. It's not about trying harder. It's not about being 
trying to be a better person. It's about living with Christ-centered lives, with our eyes fixed on him, being filled with the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit. And as we do that, God helps us, makes us eager to do what's good. He changes something inside us. He gives us a new heart. It's incredible. We want to be fruitful. It's not about us trying harder and doing well. It's about him. We can only be fruitful because he enables it. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. So let's just look at this together. This is what Peter concludes. Peter, probably a man just like us, like me, rubbish at self-control. No self-control. This is a guy with no self-control. God does something in his life. He receives grace from God, and this is what he says. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. God gives us everything we need for a godly life. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us all we need to live like that. We need to walk in step with the Spirit. And that will enable us to live fruitful lives for him. Wonderful. God's desire for each one of us is to be fruitful. And so as we close, musicians are going to come. We're going to, we'll finish with a song in a second. But the challenge is, I think for us, who's driving the car? Who's in control of the car for you? Who's in control of the car of your life? Oh, it's, G- it's Jesus, but the key's left at home. <laughs> it's behind the door. We're driving, but we, he's in control, but he's not really. The key's somewhere else. Is Jesus centre? Is Jesus first and centre of your life? First and centre of your gaze? Is he your all in all? Maybe... This morning, just as we close off with our worship, this is a moment for us to go, Jesus, do you know? I I know, I know how it's supposed to be, I know what it and I haven't done very well. And I want to just fix, turn again. I want to remember you. I want to fix my eyes on you, fix my eyes on the cross, fix my eyes on the price you paid for me. And I want to receive grace again. Grace, the grace of God. May your grace teach me. I tell you, we just need to receive God's grace every day. Every moment of every day, we need to receive his grace. Because that's the only way that we can, we can walk. We need to receive his spirit, the spirit of grace. Let's stand together. Father, we, right now, we reach out our hands to you. We say... It's so easy for us to try and do things in our own strength. And it looks good to other people, but actually the key of the car is left at home. You're not centre. We've forgotten. We've somehow left you out of our equation. We're trying harder to do stuff and 
And we find moments when it all breaks down. And Jesus, we want to say, forgive us. Thank you that when we're faithless, you're faithful. When we're weak, you're strong. It isn't about us trying harder. It's about you being centre. And we want to say, Jesus, would you be centre of our gaze? Would you be our all in all? We love you, Lord Jesus. You are everything to us. Would you fill our gaze again? Fill our hearts, Holy Spirit. We want to receive you afresh. Would you equip us and empower us to live different lives in these days that we might be fruitful for you, Father.